So I want to just start by introducing myself, just giving you a little bit of my background, maybe a little bit of my resume, um, so you'll listen to me. And then we'll go from there, uh, do a little bit of house cleaning, and then get into our topic for the entire study and then for tonight. So my name is Andrew, and um, uh, I started my career in the technology world. Started programming machines in the automotive industry, robots, that kind of thing. Got out of it. I was self-employed for a little while, then got out of it. I was in full-time ministry with another branch of churches for about nine years before the Lord called us out of that. And uh, at the same time, I went back into school. So right now, I'm still in school at Moody. Um, but I went back into the automotive industry for about five years, a little less than five years, this time in a leadership role. And God was teaching me through every stage of this. I wasn't really making sense of it at the time. But just learning from life, learning from experience, learning from Scripture, and so on. And uh, here we are tonight. I will say that during the last four and a half years especially, my time in the automotive industry, my time in leadership in the corporate world has given me a lot of opportunities to learn how to conversationally speak and witness to people in a dark world and just listen to them. So we're going to be looking at that tonight a little bit. Um, I'm thankful for those years now. I'm not sure I was so thankful for them going through them. But I'm thankful for them now, looking back and seeing the lessons and the training that he's given me through all of that as well. So I'm a lifetime student of God's world and our brokenness. In other words, I'm a bit of a nerd. Uh, programming machines taught me how to think logically. I had to think step by step through how to write a story of how a machine was going to operate and how a machine was going to function. That, uh, that trained me in ways of just thinking through things, and that has helped with sermons, teaching the Bible, and so on as well. I've had to study scripture, preach, teach, um, self-learn for a while. The last churches I was involved with did not, uh, did not promote any kind of formal education, um, and it's just the way it was. So I had to self-learn quite a bit during that time, and I'm thankful now for the formal education that I'm getting at this time as well. So, uh, learning to communicate truth to non-Christians and to Christians has been uh, something that I value very much, especially learning to communicate to non-Christians, using their language to preach the gospel, to communicate the gospel. We're going to be getting into that through the nights that are coming. What is my personal goal for this course well, one thing is, my prayer is that we will turn from despair to confidence. Confidence in God, not in ourselves. About our own impact on the world, that's up to God, it's not up to us. About having and raising children in this world, I know many of you are terrified of that, terrified of the future and what's coming about the future of our nation and Western society. So we need to turn from despair to confidence in God. He's the writer and author of all of history. He's sovereign over it all. 
I also pray that we would be resolved to maximize our own lives for God's glory. If anything has happened in the last two years, I hope, I know one of the impacts on myself and my wife and our family has been to realize life is very short and every moment counts for making a difference for God's glory. So these classes are not just to fill our heads with a bunch of head knowledge. They are to build resolve, to maximize our lives, to make choices that will make us most effective for the glory of God. That might mean suffering, and that's okay. It's also a goal that we become aware of the cultural narratives and the underlying motives behind them. We're going to be talking about some of that tonight. As well as that, uh, we want to be equipped and prepared for spiritual warfare. And we also want to renew our focus on making disciples who make disciples. All right, so a couple of notes. Tonight is very content heavy. I'm just going to warn you right up front. There's a, a lot that has to be said tonight, a lot of building. We're kind of building the foundation of our series. So... Some nights, hopefully, I'm hoping in the future we'll have some Q&A. If there is, I'll put my number up on the board. That's really risky. Don't be calling me at 3 a.m., all right? And you can text in questions if, as they come. I may not be able to answer all of them, but uh, at least we'll try to have a little bit of a discussion. That's not going to happen tonight. I can guarantee that. Um, the sessions are being recorded. So if uh, you have to miss a night, that's okay. Um, you don't even have to tell me. Uh, I'll probably, hopefully, I haven't really talked to Jay yet about this, but hopefully we'll put a link out somehow and get those out to you. We'll figure that out and, and uh, let you know how to have access to the recordings. Uh, so we're going to plan to run for about an hour, have a 15-minute break, and then run for another 45 minutes tonight. Now, that's only if you promise me that the break will only be 15 minutes. I may need an enforcer. Who am I going to pick? Who wants to be an enforcer tonight to make sure it's only 15 minutes? All right, Jonathan. You promise? Shut the lights out on them, right? All right, you do whatever. T I don't know what that means, but we'll leave it at that. Well, that's good. And uh, just a reminder, again, in the worship center, water only. We want to love on our, care, our facility manager. And uh, so please, water only in here. There, there is coffee in the cafe. You're going to have to drink real quick because you've got 15 minutes. So that's about it. So very good. All right. Before we get into our study tonight, we're going to ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we're thankful that you've put us in this world at this time because you know what you're doing. And Lord, we'd have to be honest to admit, we have probably most of us in our humanness questioned our place in history right now. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. Uh, there's pressures on all sides. Many people here tonight are burdened with anxieties, but Lord, you've brought us to this moment in history for a purpose. So Lord, equip us for this. We know that your word equips us, gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, we are desperate for that this evening. So 
Use these moments, help us to use these moments wisely. Use them to transform our hearts and our minds that we might be more effective for your glory. We thank you again for saving us. Lord, there's no reason apart from your grace that any of us here tonight know you. We should be just as lost as all who are in darkness in this world. But by your grace and mercy, you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and we're grateful. We want to praise you and worship you at the very uh, beginning of this study, and we ask that you will be our teacher through it. And we ask this again in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. All right, we're going to start off with some verses. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 is going to be where we're going to open here. Just to kind of give us perspective on why, why did we even call this study Behind Enemy Lines? What are we talking about? The idea is we want to prepare ourselves to be basically mercenaries for Christ, right? We want to prepare ourselves to be paratroopers who have dropped behind enemy lines. We're surrounded by the enemy every single day. We're supposed to be connected to them. We're supposed to live in this world. We're not supposed to be separated to ourselves. And we have been, as we heard on Sunday, we have been called to shine as lights in a very dark world. That's what we've been called to do. So look at verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Finally, and when Paul says finally to the Ephesians, he's saying most importantly. This is the last thing he's been building to this point. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. Now, I want you to notice there's, a, there's an increasing description being given here of these enemies. They're getting bigger as Paul's talking. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. It's like beings out in outer space, right? Cosmic powers against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So here's a question for us tonight to start with. Do we believe, do you believe that we are currently at war spiritually? Do we believe that? I wonder if we believed that two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. I mean, life was going along pretty smooth. But I think it's pretty clear at this point, we're in a battle. We, I don't, I'm not quite sure we understand just how big the battle is. And in fact, how big the battle has always been, whether we've been aware of it or not. Here's another question for you. Do you believe that... You are smarter than the devil's schemes. That you can somehow outsmart the lies of the culture, the pressures around us, that you can strategize and come up with ways to outsmart the devil. Because Paul says you can't. That's why he says, be strong, not in yourself, in the Lord. 
and in the strength, not of your brilliance and your might and your expertise, but his might and put on the whole armor of God. That's what we're going to be trying to do uh, for the next number of weeks, 10 weeks. Truth is, does your life reflect your answers to those questions? Does your life reflect your answers to those questions? I mean, after all, if we do understand that the devil is smarter than us and he hates us, it's probably going to make us very dependent on God's word to navigate through our lives, isn't it? We're not going to wake up in the morning and it's optional whether we get into God's word or not. If we understand that I can walk out the door today and the devil could take me down so fast that I don't even see it coming, we'll be desperate to equip ourselves in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his might, won't we? So here's what we're going to be doing over the next number of weeks. Uh, we're going to be learning how to respond to the culture, and this is in your handout. I gave you some fill-in-the-blanks because I don't want you to get lazy. I want you to stay uh, on track. So I'm going to try and, and uh, not miss any of these along the way. But the first thing we're going to be learning is how to engage culture with gospel wisdom. Engaging culture with gospel wisdom. Second thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be learning to survive culture with gospel perseverance. So we need to learn how to survive culture. It's going to come down on us. Are we going to cave? Or are we going to stand? So we're going to learn how to do that with gospel perseverance. And hopefully through this whole thing, we'll be able to define what we mean by the gospel. It's not merely the altar call at the end of a sermon, you know, the come to Jesus type gospel. That's one dimensional. We're talking about the fullness of the gospel, so we will go through that. Thirdly, we're going to look at confronting culture with gospel courage and how we do that. Those three elements as we go through. The rest of the purpose of the course I put out in that email, so I'm not going to, uh, not going to go through that. So tonight we're getting into cultural Marxism. And in fact, what we're going to do, we're going to do two things. We're going to actually um, look at our worldview. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard the term worldview, but it doesn't often come up in uh, sermons what a worldview actually is and what it consists of. So we need to be clear on that. We're going to be clear. We're going to go through that tonight. What are the elements of a thorough and full worldview? Uh, but in doing that, we're also going to be looking at the worldview of cultural Marxism, how we recognize a worldview that is out there, and how we can kind of line that up with a gospel worldview and so on. But the first thing I wanted to show you, this was interesting. If you look up cultural Marxism as a term, and in fact, before two years ago, we had a conference here, I think it was two years ago, and Dr. Tony Costa was here and he was talking about cultural Marxism. I'd never heard of it before in my life and I'd done a lot of studying and I'd done a lot of uh, apologetics, but I had never heard of cultural Marxism. I'd heard of many other uh, aspects to absolute truth, relative truth and all those things, but I'd never heard of this. I remember watching a lot of debates with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and all these guys on and, and the new atheism movement, which is kind of almost antique now. I don't know where they went, but you don't hear much from them anymore. But cultural Marxism has been alive and well all along, and we weren't looking at it. And now it's almost too late. It, the storm is here. 
And part of it is we're gonna to have to learn how to ride out the storm, but at the same time, it's a great opportunity. We've been hearing that, Pastor Aaron's been talking about that. It's a great opportunity for us to live for Christ and to see his kingdom advanced. So it's not something where we lay down in defeat, but it's coming. But if you look up, if you Google cultural Marxism, first item you will find will come up is this. This is why you don't trust Wikipedia. This is what they say. Now this should tell you everything you need to know about what the culture wants you to know about cultural Marxism. It's a conspiracy theory and it is anti-Semitic. Now those are some stretches. Those are some real big stretches. Some people have tried to make this case and uh, it's, it's hard not to read Marx and read all of his followers and not recognize that it's everywhere in our culture today. It's everywhere. And I'm going to show you an example of this. This came from my daughter's high school. This is on Edsby right now. Uh, I get all of her uh, Edsby entries from her teachers. And this came up and we've been having chats because she's been uh, in the class and, and telling me about it and everything. I'm probably going to show you some pictures in the nights to come. And actually, I'm not disturbed about my daughter being in the class, okay? I want you to know right now that I am training my children to be mercenaries in this world, and I want them to engage their culture. I do. So I'm going to train them to do that as best I can by God's grace. Um, and so her being in this class, now I did contact the principal, and I said, do you realize what's going on in this class? And he didn't know much about it, so... He, uh, he did some homework and some research, and uh, he said, actually, to tell you the truth, this is actually within uh, the Board of Education guidelines. So guess what? This wheel of power and privilege that shows our young people that they can categorize themselves by all kinds of identities, whatever identity they want to choose, and determine whether or not they are a victim or a victor, Right? Yeah, this is in a high school near you. Uh, this is grade 12 English, by the way. I'm not quite sure what this has to do with English, although they say what I was told was that they're being taught to look at the literature through a number of critical lenses. Now, the word critical is going to come up quite a bit through this talk. We're going to learn what that word means. We're going to learn next week that terms matter in our culture. Terms are being twisted and redefined, and we don't even realize that we're speaking a different language. But a number of critical lenses, guess what? I don't know what those number of critical lenses are, but they're all from the same critical background critical studies of all different kinds. This is cultural Marxism. So guess what, Wikipedia? You can tell me it's a conspiracy theory all you want, but this is real life just down the road from my home. And this is what our young people in Canada today are being trained as. They're being trained as little Marxists. And I was talking to a cousin of mine just a couple of weeks ago, telling him what what, uh, what I was learning was going on in this class, and he said he's been out of school probably 10 years now, and he told me, he says, oh, yeah, we've been learning that for years. It's nothing new. I kind of knew it. I just didn't know it was overt, and that's exactly what I told the principal of the school. I had a few other things to tell him at the same time, but uh, this is what's going on. I wonder what to do about it. Do you go to the school board? Do you... Do you make a speech? Guess what? They're all in the same team. 
There's nobody there to check and balance what's going on. This is what's been happening. And it's been happening under our noses for decades now. That's what we're going to find out tonight. And it's almost too late to stop the bus. But the problem with Marxism is it's going to self-destruct. It always does. It's just a matter of how much debris is going to be in its path when it's done. This is what we're up against, folks. So here we go. Let's go into what, ele- what the elements are of a worldview. We're going to get into this first, and then we're going to move into the uh, worldview of cultural Marxism. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's a really broad statement of the history of the world. And what God has been up to throughout the entire history of the world. God loving the world, God giving his son to save and redeem those who come to him. That's true. So what is a worldview? Let's define that first. Well, a worldview is the lens through which a person interprets all of life in the inhabited world. So all of us are moving through the world, we're you know, living and working next to people in cubicles or in, in classrooms and, uh, or at home, and we're living around people, and everyone is looking at what they see, their surroundings, their circumstances, their experiences, their history, histories they've studied. They're looking at it all, and they're interpreting through their lens just what it all means. That's what a worldview is, and if we don't have a proper lens to look at the world, it's going to all be very distorted and hazy. It's not going to look right. And we're going to come up with ideas that are nonsense, that aren't going to work because they don't fit the world that we live in. So here are the four elements of a worldview that we need to look at. The first one is our origin. We need to understand where we've come from and who was here first. Our origin. Now, I want you to notice something. All of these elements are things that cannot be seen, but they must be answered to respond to what we can see. These are things we can't see, but we have to have an explanation of them or we can't properly understand the things that we do see around us. Secondly, meaning. Why are we here? What is the point of all of this? This was one where the new atheist couldn't answer it. Science doesn't answer this. I'm sorry. It doesn't give us any purpose for being here. It just says that we are here. I have no idea why we're here. So while we're here, why don't we just make a better world? Well, that's not a reason. It's not a reason. We need to understand our meanings. Thirdly, morality. Meaning leads to morality. Because if you understand the meaning why you're here, you understand what is important, then you understand to drive to that goal what is going to get us off track and what is going to keep us on track. So morality, and lastly, destiny. So last element of our worldview. Where is it all going? Where is this leading? Now, there are going to be a few other things that we're going to notice about this as we go through, but here are the challenges with a worldview that we need to understand. So I'm going to give these really quick. These are not up on a screen anywhere, but we need to understand these about our worldview. And I've actually had a chance at work with my coworkers uh, to, to say this to them. Whatever 
way you view the world. It's going to determine the choices you make in life, but you better make sure that you have a solid worldview or you're going to self-destruct. There are going to be consequences to a wrong one. You can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. If I go home tonight and I walk in my neighbor's house, well, I might have been sincere. I thought it was my house, but I was sincerely wrong, right? Oops, sorry about that, a little intrusive. Okay, so here's the first thing. Everyone has a worldview, whether they know it or not. Everyone has a worldview, whether they know it or not. Your children have a worldview. They haven't thought about it, but they do. They have a lens through which they see the world. The candy on the shelf at Walmart that they think they need above everything else is part of their worldview. Their worldview is telling them, I need that no matter what it takes, even if it takes a tantrum, right? Uh, Secondly, every worldview must contain all four elements to be complete. It has to answer all of these questions in order to be complete. Any, any worldview that misses one of these elements is not a complete, it's not a worldview. It's not a good worldview. Third, each of the four elements must cohere. In other words, they must fit together. You can't say in one, on one side that we're all here because a bunch of molecules just got together and decided to have a party, right? And eventually it formed into us and then say, but there's a reason to live your life. There's purpose to your life. So get out there. You can't say that. They don't go together, right? It has to cohere. It has to move towards something. All of them have to fit. Next, all four elements must align with reality. They must align with reality. So historical reality physical reality, spiritual reality. That's one we're trying so hard to ignore today, right? We're trying to get rid of religion. The problem is all of us have a religious instinct in us because we're spiritual beings. It's in us. So if we're not going to worship God, we're going to worship something. All of us do. So it must align with reality, all the different aspects of reality around us. And then all four elements must be true to reality in all aspects of life, in all aspects of life. So no matter what part of it, we can't compartmentalize our life. We can't have a certain worldview over here in this part of, in our private life and one in our personal, in our public life and so on. We can't do that. All aspects of reality, of life, have to uh, be summed up with these four elements. So what does a Christian or a gospel-centered worldview look like? I don't want to spend too much time on this, um, but this is something that if I'm going to give you homework, this would be your homework. To go home and check what your worldview is according to the gospel. In other words, what does the Bible say and does it align with the way you see the world? Right? So, uh, and, and by the way, I'm just going to add to this now that all of these, so in the Christian worldview, at this point, all knowledge of these elements of, of our worldview, they come from the same source. 
And in our case, they all come from God. All right, so our worldview begins here. It begins with the understanding that God made the world, so he infused, he, he created reality for us, right? We are in his inhabited world. He made us in his image, so therefore there is a God instinct in us. There is a knowledge, a law written on our hearts. We understand and know something must be out there. That's why superstitions uh, or, you know, the fascination with zombies or aliens, something must be out there, right? We understand that from a Christian perspective. But God conveys, how do we understand? So how do we get information from God about these elements of our worldview? Well, we get them by way of revelation. God reveals himself to us in two ways, both generally, so through his creation, we have revelation of God's nature and God's power. That's Romans 1. Though they knew God, how did they know God? They could see him in creation around them right? General revelation, but also special revelation or specific revelation. And that is through God's word, the Bible that testifies to God's living word, Jesus Christ. I want to stop right here for a moment because someone may ask you at work, why is it that you make the Bible the basis of your authority? Why is it that your worldview is summed up by the Bible? Why do you think the Bible is true? Well, I'm going to give you the most fundamental answer to this. I'm just going to stop here. I'm kind of off the rail here for a minute, but it's important. Here it is. If Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again from the dead, then he's God and what he says is true. Okay? So how do we know that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again? Well, we know it because it's historically documented and it's historically documented in the most verifiable way. It's been scrutinized by scholars down through the centuries who come back, the four gospels make it very clear that what Jesus did, Jesus did. There is no other historical document in our history more reliable than the four gospels written by men who were kind of going like, we had no idea what was going on. And we weren't cluing in very much. And then not only that, but they went to their deaths claiming that it was true. All right, so Jesus Christ is God. And if he's God, think about this for a moment. He endorsed the Old Testament as scripture. So Jesus Christ is God. He says the Old Testament is scripture. And he endorsed or he summoned, he commissioned the apostles to write the New Testament as scripture. So in both cases, it hinges on Jesus Christ dying and rising again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is really the core, the foundation of why we know the Bible is the word of God, because Jesus says so. And Jesus gets to say so because he died and rose again. And that is verifiable. All right, so that's special revelation. How do we come in contact with that revelation? We do that by faith. And here is another 
here's another misunderstanding in our culture. They think that knowledge and faith are somehow separated from each other, and that is not the case. Faith is not blind faith. It is not knowledge-less faith. Faith is merely listening and comprehending the revelation of God and then interpreting the world through that lens. That's what faith is. So by faith, we receive God's revelation to us. That's how it works. It's not blind faith, especially if God made the world and he made us in his image. All right. So what does a Christian worldview look like? Origin, where did we come from? Who was here first? Listen, this is going to come up. We're going to talk about sexual ethics in a few weeks. This is where I always begin when I'm talking to non-believers about sexual ethics. I always begin with the fact that God created the world and he gets to say how it runs. He is the origin of reality. He is the creator and therefore he is the judge. We don't apologize to other creatures for what the creator has said. That's why our preaching here at Harvest is unapologetic because it's the word of the creator. The world, the material universe, was made for mankind to steward and to interact with God in. It's the stage on which God unfolds his revelation to his people through all of history, which we call redemptive history, because it is the history, it is the story of God redeeming his creation. God is the source of reality, God is the source of truth, God is the source of justice, God is the source of love, and we could go on and on. That is all in our Christian gospel-centered worldview of origin. God created the world with his word in a way that reflects himself. We know much about God from his creation of the world, all right? Mankind as well, in the origin, we also get the value of humankind because mankind is created in the image of God, which defines our worth. And that's going to come up over and over again as well. Secondly, meaning. So if Genesis 1 tells us something about our origin, Genesis, the end of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tell us something about why we're here. Because God told the first two human beings, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So they were called to be his managers. They were called to, to look over, oversee, and supervise his creation. Man was created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what the Westminster Catechism says. That's the chief end of man. To enjoy him. Does that sum up why I get up every single morning? And that leads to morality. How do I know what's right? How do I navigate between right and wrong? Well, Genesis 3 goes into that, but the fact is, meaning, our meaning, our purpose, humanity was created to glorify God and enjoy him forever, leads to the fact that we didn't glorify God, we did not enjoy him forever, and therefore, we transgressed 
the command and the word of God. And we stopped trusting him. We stopped obeying him. How do we know what's right? God's purpose for his creation defines what's right and wrong. God's character defines what's right and wrong. Mankind is morally responsible for trusting and obeying God's principles. As a result, men and women are fallen creatures due to the original sin of Adam and Eve. Death has entered, just like God said, the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And we died in four different ways. Okay, I'm going to give these to you very quickly. We, first of all, and death, by the way, just, it's a, it, it means separation or alienation, right? When someone dies, they're separated from us. They're no longer responsive to us. The first way we died was toward God. Immediately, Adam and Eve are running from him and hiding. Secondly, we died toward self. Self-loathing, shame, guilt. We're trying to cover ourselves. We're trying to make clothing to cover our shame. Third, we died toward others. We died toward others. Adam is very quickly throwing his wife under the bus. Well, the woman you gave me, over there, you've got the wrong number over here, right? We died toward others. That's why our relationships are ruptured. And by the way, can you see at this point how worldview reflects reality? Is your worldview playing out in your marriage or in your relationship with your kids? You say, yeah, I know what this kind of death looks like. I've seen it. I've seen relationships ruptured toward myself, toward others, toward God. And then finally, the fourth one, toward creation. The world became a hostile place to live. Animals became nasty. The ground decided it was going to resist when we tried to plant seeds. And it's with the sweat of our brow that we would toil and work and slave over this world. It wasn't intended to be that way in the beginning. We were supposed to work, but we were not supposed to have to struggle with the creation around us. And the whole creation is groaning. And again, we're going to get to that in our night on environmentalism and climate change. Uh, so God righteously justifies sinners. Here it is, another point in morality that we need to be able to communicate to people, that God justifies, he righteously justifies. In other words, he declares sinners to be just or righteous based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I love telling people that God, through Jesus, can dismiss your case and you can leave his courtroom. There's no better news. No better news. People who have transgressed against God's law can repent, turn to Christ, and be dismissed from the courtroom. Not only that, received into God's family and adopted. All right, and destiny. The last one, here it is. From Genesis to Revelation, we have the whole story of paradise lost in Genesis all the way through, through all these spirals of history. Around and around we go. Dark light, dark light, or should we say dark, less dark, dark, less dark, right? It's never been quite light in our broken world, but here we go, circle after circle of revival and then failure and revival and failure all the way to the end in Revelation where we have what we are heading towards, which is the brightest hope and confidence of the Christian, paradise restored in Christ. 
We started in Adam with a broken world and we are expecting, we're moving through this world, looking for, anticipating, along with the broken creation as well, just anticipating, groaning as in childbirth. That's the picture that the apostle Paul gives to us. I have no idea what that's like, but I can only imagine. I've been a witness to it four times now. And we are groaning as in childbirth for the day that's coming when Jesus is going to come back and set the world right. And apart from Jesus coming back, the world will not be right, even though the cultural Marxists are going to try. We're looking for a new physical earth a new physical universe, the new heavens and the new earth on which we will live again. Why? For the meaning we were supposed to in the first place to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is, in a nutshell, a Christian worldview. That's what it looks like. So here we go. We're going to move on to just develop and uh, look through what cultural Marxism is and the history of it. Well, we're going to begin, I'm going to build a timeline here for us all. We're going to begin back in 1820 when Karl Marx, 1818, showed up on planet Earth. And over time, uh, I think they say... It's anti-Semitic because Marx happened to be Jewish and some of the men who ended up in the Frankfurt School happened to be Jewish as well. Um, but what, was, what did he believe? What, what did he come up with in his life? Well, one of his famous statements in the Communist Manifesto was, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, right? First of all, he was an atheist. He believed in his worldview that the material world is all there is. So if you can touch it, it's real. And that's it. Nothing else is real. Just the material world is real. That's what he, uh, he, he believed, and that kind of determined his uh, economics. He was a poet too, by the way. I'm going to read you something that he wrote. Uh, this, was, uh, this was him writing about and trying to depict his his combat with the gods or theism or Christianity or the natural order as it is. And this is what he wrote. He said, so a God has snatched from me my all in the curse and rack of destiny. All his worlds are gone beyond recall. Nothing but revenge is left to me. This is really kind of dark stuff. I shall build my throne high overhead. Cold, tremendous shall its summit be for its bulwark superstitious dread for its martial blackest agony and the almighty's lightning shall rebound. In other words, it'll just bounce off of me from that massive iron giant. If he brings my walls and towers down, eternity shall raise them up defiant. That was his view of God. No one's going to touch him. He's going to do it himself. He diagnosed the world's problems because he believed that the material world was all that there was. He diagnosed the world's problems as being divisions or injustice, and it all had to do with economic conflict. In other words, money. And that separated people into classes between the industrial capitalists, or what he called the bourgeoisie, and the working class, or the proletariat. According to uh, the manifesto, 
Communist Manifesto, his origin, so his worldview, in his worldview, the original state of man was a primitive communist without private property. That was the writings of one man that I, I, I was reading, a primitive communism without private property. So he believed that in the beginning there was nothing to own, nothing to own. Everyone just shared everything and then something happened and we had capitalism. He actually was the one who coined the term capitalism. I don't like the term capitalism. Um, kind of like the Monopoly game, right? You see the guy with the tuxedo on it, that kind of thing. And all he's about is greed and money and everything. Um, we're going to look in a few nights about what the free market should look like. And by the way, yes, high school teacher again, English high school teacher saying things like in class to grade 12 students, I just can't wait for capitalism to be over, right? That's what's going on in a high school near you folks. That's what's going on. Where did it come from? Well, he believed, Marx also believed, the only solution would require a violent revolution of the working class revolting against the capitalists. So the workers eventually, they would get so tired of their low wages and of being abused by the capitalists, the industrial capitalists, that they would finally rise up and there would be a great giant world war and they would overthrow the capitalists. And for a while, there would be a socialist government set up, just kind of pur purge the world of the demons. And once the demons were all purged out, then we would enter this, this, uh, this time period where all the good people would be left and they wouldn't have to worry about private property anymore because no one would steal, no one would lie, no one would cheat, no one would be greedy anymore, no one would be jealous. We'd all be just living it up, happy, right? This is the 60s. This is exactly what guys like John Lennon believed, right? No private property, we're not gonna share. We won't have to, or we'll share everything. We won't have to own anything. That's what he believed was gonna happen. So the way it works is we start with capitalism, we move to socialism, Right, and that's what Stalin and Lenin and uh, in Russia, that's what they were. It was a socialist system executing. At one time, Stalin was executing a thousand political prisoners every single day, trying to purge the world of the demons, get rid of them all before we can set up this communist idea. Guess what? The Christian worldview says, my heart's corrupt and so is yours. And you can purge all day long, but it doesn't matter. It starts here and it's just, interesting the irony behind Stalin and Lenin trying to purge the world of all the bad people. Meanwhile, they end up being acting like the worst of the demons, right? With the, the murders that were, and you know what? In our culture, guess what? I've seen this over and over again. These Marxists today in our high schools can talk about the wonders of communism and what it will bring. Basically what they're looking for is a new world a new world uh, without God, a new heavens and a new earth, but this time without a creator, without religion, without worship, without any of those things. Uh, ironically, Marx moved to England at the end of his life and he was still writing, but guess what? The workers' wages were going up. World War I broke out and guess what? Again, it didn't happen the way Marx said it was going to happen. Instead of the workers rising up against the industrial capitalist, they actually fought for their nations and they fought for their families. They didn't want to leave their families. They were loyal to things that he didn't expect. So he was dead wrong. 
But the revolutions did finally occur, just not in the capitalist countries. Happened in places like Russia, China, Cambodia, Cuba, Burma, Congo, Zimbabwe, East Germany, North Korea, Venezuela. Uh, I thought I had a list somewhere, but maybe I didn't. Approximately almost 100 million deaths. Here it is. Our culture today, notice this. My wife and I are watching a Netflix series. Maybe you've seen it, World War II in color. Um, just recently. Fascinating series, but I noticed something um, that I thought was very interesting. Our culture has a lot to say about the Holocaust. You notice this? So the Holocaust, we had uh, about between 10 and 17 million people died. Horrific. Not going to deny that. And if you watch World War II in color, you'll notice who the victims are. The fascists are the villains, and they were, and the communists were the heroes. In fact, Hitler went after the Jews because he said they were communists. So all the way through, there's this emphasis on the Holocaust that cost us up to 17 million lives. Meanwhile, Marxism and communism, which People are promoting today and saying, this is going to be the answer to our society. We're going to set this up. This is, going to, this is going to work. We're going to teach our high school kids. We're going to teach our grade school kids this kind of thing. And as they're setting it up, they're ignoring the fact that almost 100 million people have died in the 20th century from Marxist ideas. 20 million in Russia, 65 million in China, 1 million in Vietnam, 2 million in North Korea, 2 million in Cambodia. I haven't watched The Killing Fields. I hear it's horrific. Um, and it, it depicts the horror of what happened in Cambodia uh, where people were slaughtered and left in the fields. Almost 100 million people. So guess what? As wonderful as it sounds, there's this little thing called reality. Remember that whole thing, your worldview has to align with reality? It doesn't align with reality. 